it's a really difficult thing, um, especially in the music industry of, of I mean, of many industries, but the music industry is obviously victim to disruptive technologies and it has been for, since the beginning of recorded music time. Disruptive technologies is basically the name of the game. And we've been arguing about this for, for decades, right? Hey everyone, welcome back. You know, it's been a few months since we've done a podcast and while I've enjoyed the downtime, it's let me focus on family and work and just unwinding. I gotta say, I've really missed it. I love talking to people about the cool stuff they do out in the world. You know, it's really interesting to be able to, to explore ideas and really chop it up with people. And the more I do it, the more I realize that there's so much left for me to learn and I learn by getting to talk to really cool people. So with that, we have been able to talk to a lot of people over the past few months, get a lot of really interesting interviews with people that I totally am in line with and I agree with. And also people where I'm like, damn, you said some stuff that like really challenged my thinking. I might agree with, I might disagree with, but also it's like really caused me to think about what do I believe in? Why do I believe it? So with that, I hope, you know, as we're starting back up with the podcast, you get as much out of these next episodes as I have. Our first guest is someone that I have immense respect for and immense love for. Someone that I've had a chance to work with, uh, both in terms of recording records and being part of that process, but also someone whose career and business I've watched develop and has really inspired me in how I grow mine. So with that, Jesse Gander, uh, Jesse is the owner and chief recording engineer at Rain City Recorders in Vancouver, BC. He's been involved in sound and music production for over 20 years. He's recorded 600 releases by over 500 bands and artists from all around the world, Argentina, Colombia, Belgium, Thailand, US, Canada, and so many more. These projects have been varied in genre with a focus on original independent music. He's experienced with all aspects of record making from engineering, both analog and digital, to songwriting and production. Jesse started recording bands in basements on weekends when he was in high school in the 1990s. From there, he went on to run the B Room at Profile Studios from 2001 to 2003. He was also the chief recording engineer, along with Colin Stewart, at the Hive Creative Labs from 2003 to 2016. This conversation is really cool. I'd say it's, and not, not to take a shine off anyone else, it's definitely my favorite interview. And it's my favorite for a bunch of reasons. Uh, Jesse and I come from the same culture, you know, punk and hardcore. And he's someone that's really created a very successful business that's based on the ethics that we came up with, but a, a version of it for someone who's like, well, yeah, I still need to make a living. I think what he's done and the way he's done it is really inspirational. And the way that he can talk about creative pursuits is something that I just think is like really intellectual, but totally approachable. I think you're gonna love it. Before we get into it, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. I'm your host, Aram Arslanian, and this is One Step Beyond. everybody we are back today i am with uh someone that i'm super psyched to have on the show a really good friend and also someone that i find to be just a super inspirational business person artist and a great creative force in, in north american music and i'd say even global music so with that jesse welcome to the show hi ram thanks for having me all right so for the uninitiated for people who don't know who are you and what do you do 
Um, yeah, my name is Jesse, and I'm a guy that's um, been recording, uh, you know, underground music and alternative music um, for about 25 years uh, out of Vancouver, British Columbia. I, I started when I was really young, um, uh, when I was about 14 years old, and uh, started recording bands on weekends, and have kind of built um, built a, a recording studio uh, over the, over the last 30 years or so. Which is insane. Like I actually <laughs> recorded, not recorded, maybe. I think you mixed something for mm -hmm. us in your parents' basement. Yeah, I started in my parents' basement when my older brothers moved out. Um, and, you know, had a, having portable recording systems that I would bring to people's houses in East Vancouver. Um, yeah, even even as early as when I was in grade nine, right. um, yeah, grade 10. I, I started at about 14 years old. Uh, I'm about 44 years old now. So it's, it's a, been about 30 years of recording bands. Uh, so let's go all the way back to the beginning. What was your first real introduction to music where you're like, oh, like, that's my thing. I'm into that. Yeah. Like, I mean, my my parents are big music lovers, so there was tons of music in the house all the time. You know, they're both um, both have massive record collections, um, you know, and alternative music as well. Not not just mainstream music. Uh, also, you know, both of them, I'd say, are are pretty serious audiophiles as well. My, my dad being an electrician, he's also kind of technologically inclined in that way, you know, like always tweaking his speakers to make them sound better. And, you know, um, yeah, like I definitely grew up in a house where where records was a was a prominent part of of my life. Um, you know, I, I started being given music as a gift for you know my birthday and Christmas and stuff like that as, as early as about being about grade one or grade two, you know I was given a ghetto blaster. I, I mean, it's not the correct word, a portable sound system. Um, you know, in grade two, and started asking for cassettes. Um, and uh, yeah, it wasn't too long after that, you know, that my tastes in music started to deviate towards like my own self versus the music that was chosen for me by my parents. So. Um, yeah, so pretty early on, I, I knew that, you know, music and particularly recorded music was like a, a strong interest of mine and, and sound as well. How did you make that leap from being someone who just liked music, like, oh, I'm a fan and, you know, maybe even have this specific kind of music mm -hmm. to actually saying, oh, I want to understand and actually do the recording, the engineering, the producing? For me, it was like... Um, there's actually there's a, there's a couple of pivotal moments. I mean, I started taking piano lessons in, in grade two um, just because uh, we had a piano in the house and I just would like to tinker on it. And, you know, my parents got me some piano lessons once a week, you know, so I started learning some of the you know basics of music and music theory and stuff like that and just playing an instrument. Um, you know, also in, in school, you know, uh, elementary school, even, you know, they, they had a, a, a simple band program that you can participate in. I played the drums or something. But um, but but what really. Um, what, what, what started to kind of connect uh, sound and technology together for me and music was, um, you know, on my on my original uh, portable sound system, it had like a little graphic EQ, a five band graphic EQ. And and I, I remember discovering um, uh, Metallica and Justice for All. I was in grade five and actually my good friend Andy Dixon, who's one year younger than me. His older brother had subscribed to the Columbia House Music Club, if you'll remember, where they'd send you the cassette once a month or a CD if you were, if you had, we had cassettes. Um, and if you didn't like it, you'd have to mail it back. Otherwise, you'd keep it and you'd be billed for it. And he'd subscribed to the hip hop selection of the month, but they incorrectly sent him the heavy metal selection of the month, which was Metallica and Justice for All, which was a brand new album at the time. And I remember, you know, Andy getting that album, his brother being, his brother's lazy. He's like, I don't want to mail it back. You, you kids, you know, my little brother can just have the record, you yeah. know, it's fine. 
So, and us listening to it and being like, this is cool. This is way cooler than Bon Jovi. Like we, we like Bon Jovi and stuff at the time. We're like, this is heavier and more threatening and more cool. But I'm like, but where's the bass, you know? And, mm-hmm. and I remember just like playing with my graphic EQ and trying to turn up the bass and being like, I still don't hear the bass. Like, where is it? You know? And I'm just, I remember just sort of making a connection thinking like, there's something wrong with the sound of this record. I love it, but I'm missing something. And uh, just thinking, how do I fix this little problem? And that was maybe my first kind of connection that technology could somehow affect your perception of, of music, you know? That is an insane story. Yeah. And for anyone who hasn't, <laughs> who's not listening or anyone who's listening, who's but who's not familiar with the story, um, this record, Injustice for All, is like really famous for having the bass uh, basically not be present in the mix mm-hmm. because of the tragedy of Cliff Burton passing away and then getting a new bass player. But the band feeling, I don't know, how would you describe it? Like a lot of grief around it. I think it could have been like, I, I often wondered um, if um, if maybe Jason Newstead just wasn't a very good bass player. They decided to bury him in the mix because mm-hmm. sometimes when we're working with a musician, that's just not quite as good, mm-hmm. especially in the analog days where the, the ability to edit someone's performance was far, far less, mm-hmm. almost non-existent to some degree. Um, I thought that maybe he, his bass player wasn't very good, but somebody released the record and, and Justice for Jason, where they turned the bass up. <laughs> And um, and his bass plays awesome on it. I think it was an aesthetic thing. They wanted the kick drum to be clear. And, and also, adversely, that record, the kick drum, I think, is the beginning of the kick drum sound that became punk and hardcore's kind of de facto kick drum yeah. sound for many years to come. When you listen to 90s straight edge hardcore, for example, or other forms of metal or punk rock, that kick drum sound is is... It, it resonates through society for maybe 10 or, or 15 years beyond that, even to this day. So so I think by losing the bass, they also define the kick drum in a way that maybe metal quite hadn't, heavy metal hadn't quite defined that aspect of the sound. And that's also something I noticed and something I became kind of, um, you know, aware of or, or, or critical of or, or, you know, not even critical of it. I, I like it. But but it's something that started to make me think about music more in a, in a, in it's timbre, not just its notes. Yeah. And then, of course, you ended up playing in a, if you're from Canada, especially from the West Coast of Canada, the much, the very legendary and much loved DBS. Yeah, I, I started that band very, very young, like, um, again, with my friend Andy Dixon, who, who, who him and I discovered Metallica together, or his older brother introduced us to them by accident. Um, you know, we 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 were we were kind of the kids, uh, along with our friend Paul Patko, who were um, who were kind of into alternative music uh, at a at a very young age. Metallica may, uh, may not seem alternative now, but but at that time they still were, uh, at least to us and our ability to discover underground music. And um, yeah, and that, and also combined with skateboarding videos, which were often targeted towards you know, older teens or, or younger adults, they would have, of course, interesting, like, you know, new music, like we discovered Bad Religion and Descendants and some of the 80s punk bands like that. Um, yeah, so we started, you know, wanting to start a band pretty early on and taking guitar lessons and piano lessons and stuff. And, and um, you know, that also kind of led to me being the recording guy because, you know, Andy played guitar and Paul played drums. And, and I just sang because having piano in a, punk band is a little unusual sometimes i would play a little bit of keys on a record and there was a few shows even i did but but it wasn't it's not really a typical instrument you hear in that genre of music we wanted to make so as such i became the singer now i didn't have to buy a guitar amp i didn't have to buy a drum set i didn't have to buy these things or 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 you know do a paper route to you know board these things so so i kind of bought microphones um to sing into and a little mixer to for my pa system and stuff and 
and I started realizing, you know, I'm only I'm only a few steps away from actually just recording the demos myself. I have the mics, you know, so um, so that's really being the singer of that band also kind of transitioned me towards being the recording engineer. Um, that and also we, we recorded a lot of records in a, in a, in a high end studio in East Vancouver called called Profile Studios where many other bands have recorded, you know, DOA and SNFU and stuff. Um, and, uh, and, and, and our engineer, Cecil English, who was, um, you know, who's still, still a friend of mine, uh, was very generous with his, his knowledge with me as well. And, and very helpful in, in encouraging me to, you know, so to be involved. DBS, you guys got a lot of success right off, right out the gates. Like when Pretty you started much. playing shows, cause you were really young. You mm-hmm. had like a whole thing with like the, the shirts yeah, and like, yeah. you had a whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Getting that amount of success when you were so young and success, putting it like compartmentalized in the right yeah. way. It's not like you were living off the band no. at a young age, but you had a lot of attention. Yeah. Getting that amount of attention and let's say getting cool shows and all of that at such a young age, for some people that can set them up for failure because it mm-hmm. creates a sense of like expectation and entitlement. Mm-hmm. But it seemed like for DBS, it was something that gave you good momentum, but then you were able to kind of put your hands on the wheel and go in whatever direction you wanted afterwards. Yeah, I think for us, you know, part of pro- probably why that happened, and I, I definitely understand what you're referring to. Um, like, it's funny, because as we became more popular, opportunities, you know, to to do the more mainstream kind of things were, were presented to us, like assigned to a bigger label, or maybe play these kind of festival shows with more like mainstream, like Canadian rock bands, like versus like punk bands. But us, like, we always wanted to be like, cool you know like we wanted like we 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 started we started in the underground punk rock scene and and those were the bands that we you know respected looked up to like the older people are seeing like bands like a spark marker or strain or whatever those were bands that were like those guys are cool but they don't do this mainstream thing they do this uh diy thing and and also in the 90s like political punk rock um it's i think the politics were a lot different than they are now and it was very much about like diy doing things for cheap or for free you know fugazi were obviously the kings of that like six dollar shows ten dollar records really keeping it bare bones as cheap as it could be um and 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 so the kind of mainstream success as being sort of a CanCon rock band was a bit um, like at odds with what our actual stylistic purposes are or fitting in within within our community. Yeah. So so we kind of rejected a lot of that shit and actually kind of blew a lot of those chances. Like 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 maybe if we'd followed that path by by the time we were in our twenties, we could have been, I don't know supporting the warp tour or, or, you know, or doing those kind of big corporate events. Um, but instead we were, uh, we actually kind of became a smaller band playing like underground hardcore shows. And, and, and actually the final record was our most DIY where I recorded it and mixed it. Andy did all the artwork and put it out on his own record label, you know, and, yeah. and um, we actually handled, and even all our merch and stuff like that was, was silk screened by, by us. And, you know, we did everything ourselves. So by the end of it, we had no help anymore, no labels, nothing. We did it all ourselves. So, so we kind of did the exact opposite thing of what you're supposed to do and, and our, our, our far less famous band as a result. But, but it, I think it kind of transitioned us to being a, a, into a DIY lifestyle of which, you know, most of us in that band still pretty much live, if, if not all of us. Like Andy is a, is a self-employed artist, uh, oil painter, um, mixed media painter, but oil and pastel uh, particularly, and uh, is very, very successful with it, um, with world famous at it, basically. And and for me, recording our last albums and getting what attention we had from that, that really transitioned me into um, it becoming a day job for me to do that for other people. 
Yeah, and it's an interesting story, uh, DBS specifically, because there's a there's a case to be made of when you said, "Hey, like we kind of blew some of these things. Mm-hmm. We we wanted we wanted to be part of our community." Yeah, and then there's the case to be made of like, well, people the the number of stories of people kind of following that trail mm-hmm. and blowing it in a totally different way are just mm-hmm. so numerous. Mm-hmm. And you, you see a band like let's say Turnstile, yeah. who's kind of walking that mm-hmm. perfect path. Yeah, they are, yeah. and they've mm-hmm. done it well. Yeah. But that's like turnstile. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like that's like the band and one yeah. of the very few bands. For me, the DBS. Very unique and very talented as well, you know. Totally. Yeah. Like beyond mm-hmm. what they've done is so unique and so mm-hmm. cool. Uh, and I'm not even leave, leaving aside music, just the way they've yeah. conducted their band. Mm-hmm. Um, but the amount of bands that have ended up burning on the sides of the road is just yeah. innumerable. Absolutely. The DBS story and what's so interesting to me is like, it just seems to me to be like a, a band that meant so much to maybe a smaller group of people that mm-hmm. was possible, but that really resonated with people it's still, still with me today. And I know, uh, let's say like Damien for fucked up. Yeah. Like yeah. These kind of like unexpected yeah. people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's such an imprint on Canadian music for people who knew about it mm-hmm. and set you guys up in such a like established way where people are like, Oh no, those guys are cool. Like they're, they're ethical. They're not like those corny weirdo dudes that tried Mm -hmm. to like try too hard to make it go. In fact, you actually try to throttle it back to do what you wanted. Yeah. What for me that it's such an important calling card for anyone who'd want to work for you, work with you as like an engineer or producer Mm -hmm. because of the way you conducted yourself when you were really young. Well, that, 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 that carries through my work as a producer too. Like, like there's, um, there's lots of paths to being a producer or a recording engineer or studio owner, uh, you know, which of all those things. Um, and, and, you know, there's, there's a path where you sort of, um, attempt to grow into, um, you know, maybe you start as, as, as the cleaning the toilets at the big studio and then they allow you to make the coffee and then they allow you to go and pick up lunch. And then next thing you know, you're cleaning up after sessions and all that. And then, you know, move up to maybe assisting on sessions. And, and, and one day you may even become the producer or the, or the, or the, or the chief engineer of a session, um, you know, and you're on a salary, but, but that's not at all the way I've done it either. It's um, you know, for, for me, it's kind of a, it's kind of a tortoise or the hare sort of scenario. And, and, and with this stuff, like I've um, I've just, the concept of the studio is not for me to, you know, take out um, a multi-million dollar loan or, or try to acquire something like that and build a studio. And if you build it, they will come. That that's not at all the philosophy of the studio. The, stu- the philosophy of the studio was to, to um, to to work within the means that it had to let the business grow naturally, um, and just kind of uh, fulfill also a need in in my community, like. Like I think any business that's looking, if you're looking to start any business, market research should be your first thing you do. Like you, you look at people like you sort of, I mean, a good example right now would be Elon Musk, who is successful in some businesses, but it's not ha- having financial success so far with, with Twitter because he hasn't done the market research to determine what is required to make that a successful business. What, what, what he, what he thinks Twitter needs to be a successful, profitable business does not appear to be what it actually needs or what the consumers or the users of that platform seem to need. So in the case of the studio, 
you know, I was recording people in my parents' basement um, for eight bucks an hour, um, you know, which is what I got paid at the coffee shop, you know, and that was that was actually above minimum wage at that point in time. That was minimum wage in those days, five bucks an hour or something or six. But um, but, you know, like I was I had all these guys on my street, you know, down the street making hip hop records, guys playing in punk bands, guys playing in crappy metal bands, high school metal bands. And I just be like, I just record all of them. And I just like be like. I'm going to record your band. It's going to, you know, your expectations have to be tempered as well. You're not in a big studio. You're in my brother's bedroom who just moved out, you know? Um, <laughs> so, so if temper your expectations, but I'm going to try. Yeah. And also we don't have to temper our expectations of, of what performance could be because I'm still here to help you uh, achieve a good performance, but sonically we'll see what happens. Yeah. Um, also utilizing like technology that was reasonably new at the time, like meaning computers and digital recording, which was still new technology in the 1990s and actually quite young. Um, now it's very, very mature. But, um, you know, where other people were sort of holding on to expensive analog formats, which surely sounded better at the time. I was being like, I, I could take this compromise. And, and also that's what you're paying for as well. Like you're paying for a slightly compromised product, but but we can we can work on it together and and make it make it good. And 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 get paid a small amount of money but but then everything i i i earned as profit i reinvested into it um and still basically do <laughs> well since we're like i think we're kind of naturally getting to the space of being an engineer and producer mm -hmm. for people who don't know because you know people come to this podcast from all sorts of different backgrounds mm -hmm. could you tell us the difference or really what is an engineer what is a producer and then also mm -hmm. like a bit about like owning a studio because it's not the space you own mm -hmm. it's like basically like the brand of the studio mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. yeah. yeah so i mean i, I mean to, to, technically speaking uh, being an engineer is is the is the actual ability to operate the equipment uh, whether that be software or, or hardware um it's the it's the knowledge of of when to use microphones which microphones work on which sources this is a whole field of expertise um and, and and being a producer is kind of more about uh, the people side of it it's about um helping people with their performances um helping people with their 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 sounds maybe giving advice even onto the songwriting aspects of it and particularly if you're working on pop or, or hip-hop music or or, or modern r&b music you might actually be creating the songs that people are rapping to um you know in the case of that where the where the the creation of the of the backing track is so vital to the to the song like like for example you might not have a band you might just have a backing track and you are rapping right. so that in that case the producer is almost the songwriter mm -hmm. but in the case of rock music production it's kind of more like you help the song be better but it could also be helping with performances as well like um it could even be coaching people uh, on a psychological level people have anxiety people have nerves people have concerns when they're in the studio it's sometimes um, a sterile or unfamiliar environment which people are not used to creating in so by you you know you kind of can help people guide them through that process to make sure that they achieve their goals yeah um so talking about like the studio space, so like if people say like, hey, Rain City Recorders, mm -hmm. they think of this building. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But Rain City Recorders, like you've you've been all over the world recording bands. Rain mm -hmm. City Recorders is more of like, and again, I'm going to use this term just so it's more generalized mm -hmm. towards people. I know you don't use it for yourself, sure. but it's like, it's not the studio space. Yeah. It's the brand. Yeah, it is. It's uh, and we've kind of also done that from the beginning in a way because, like, well, m m for a few reasons. One is that we are renters here. Um, you know, real estate in Vancouver is incredibly expensive, so 
there would be a great argument to um, to be an owner of this of this of the space, but you know that's not within any of our means to to acquire it just because of the the sheer expense of real estate in Vancouver, particularly commercial real estate of of the size that we need to report a band. Um, you know, potentially people that work here could maybe afford to own an apartment one day. Even that could be a stretch. Um, but uh, but in the case of the brand, it's we're looking at a job where, you know, creating these records, whether that be on the engineering component of using the microphones and utilization, utilization of the technology or the producing elements of dealing with it on a, on a personal level, this is highly subjective. Mm -hmm. So it's not about your knowledge of the microphone that ends up being the end results. It affects it. Mm -hmm. And, and, and the technical know-how of the equipment surely affects the end results of it, but it's also sort of the stylistic intent of the implement, the implementation of that technology. So for example, I know what types of microphones were used on certain records. If you came to me and said, Oh, this music is supposed to sound like Louis Armstrong. I might have a concept as to what they used on him. I might know it's an RCA 44 microphone because I've seen pictures of Louie in the yeah, studio, yeah. you know, or you might say, I want it to sound like Metallica and Justice for All. And I'll be like, I have a concept as to what the kick drum on that record sounds like. I've thought about it. And I don't, I might not know exactly which microphone they used on that session, but I know generally what type it, it is. So, so when it comes to the brand of the studio, it's about a couple of things. One is either about, the originality of the subjective decision making that that I or we who work here have gone through to arrive at the products that you've already heard, or it is about um, the trust in that we will understand what you mean. You know, when you come to me and say, Jesse, I'm looking for the vocal sound of Louis Armstrong and the, and the kick drum sound of Metallica, I might have a concept, even though that's nonsense, I would have a concept of what that means. And, and for other people, they might not know where to start. So so the brand is is kind of like it sort of exists in my own brain, um, yeah. but also it exists in like the trust of the customer to to know that we're going to do a good job. And and all arts are subjective. It'd be the same with graphic design. You know, like if it, like when, when if you came to me and said, I want the branding of 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 of, of my company to, to be sort of like, um, an, you know, like an Apple commercial. Well, I would know what that means. Lots of white, lots of simple, bold images, lots of clear fonts mm -hmm. like you would know. And, and if you had a graphic designer that didn't know what Apple's branding looked like, well, you probably would not be very good at your job. Totally. You know, so, totally. so that's, that's, it's a trust in your customers as well. Right. So, well, and this brings me to something that I know you're passionate about, and it's such an important part of not just this conversation, but I'd say just in general, unless you work in like a totally regulated mm -hmm. industry, it's about charging your value. Yeah. So I love what you're saying. Like if I go to a, a designer and I say, hey, I want it to look at, like an Apple commercial, yeah, yeah. what that means to them, what yeah. it means to me is like, I want it to look like, yeah. you know, have lots of white yeah. light and yeah, yeah. like kind of clean yeah, with some yeah. bright colors. Yeah, yeah. But what it means to them is like, oh, this, 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 and this. Yeah. There's a name for that. Yeah. Like there's right. a style. Like totally. you, you would learn that. <laughs> totally. And yeah. all of that is based on hours and hours and yeah. hours of work and research and experience. Exactly. So getting to where you are today mm -hmm. the dollar amount that you charge is yeah. based on literally getting and justice for all noticing there's no base and the kick yeah. drum stood out from yeah. you and everything that's came from that's come from there yeah so what's your philosophy or your perspective on how people can understand and charge for their worth and also like insist upon it 
Yeah, it's a really difficult thing, um, especially in the music industry of, of I mean, of many industries, but the music industry is obviously victim to disruptive technologies and it has been for since the beginning of recorded music time. Disruptive technologies is basically the name of the game. And we've been arguing about this for, for decades, right? Like a perfect example is uh, sometimes you'll still see the old um, image is um, uh, home taping is killing music. Yeah. It's a picture of the cassette, right? <laughs> totally, totally. Famous the Dead Kennedys, who, for those who don't know, were a very famous uh, Californian punk band. Um, you know, Jella Biafra being the singer, who was an incredible, incredibly articulate and smart guy. Um, they actually printed their own cassettes that said, um, home taping is killing the music industry. We've left the other side blank so you can help. <laughs> that's, what, that's what used to be on the Dead Kennedys records. Um, but this, uh, that's where we're at now. We're at a place where, where, where the money from recorded music has been completely sucked out. The money from live music has really ramped up and people um, charge a lot more for their concerts and should be. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an advocate for that, especially even on a local and DIY level. Um, and, um, and on a recording level, we're in a tricky spot because we're making the, the music that is heard, like con consuming media is the name of the game. When you're listening to a band on Spotify or you're checking out their Instagram page and hearing a blip of the record, that someone has recorded that, someone is behind that. And, um, and someone who is often not very well credited is behind that now, because unlike in the days of CDs or LPs, where you flip over the back and you say, produced by Bob Rock, yeah. the other people became household names. Now, you're like, you just listen on Spotify and you have no idea who did it, right? Yeah. So it's becoming increasingly difficult for producers to, and engineers to charge their worth because of not really having a lot of recognition for what they do, but also the product themselves being so cheap. Like it's been a race to the bottom. Like how much music can we give you for how little money? Yeah. And we're at a point where we're basically at every song on earth for 10 bucks a month, yeah. um, which is a very, very, very low number. So that translates directly into the perceived value of our worth because um, the amount of money that you're going to make off of creating the product that we give to you is not great. That said, if you do not have a great sounding record that generates a buzz across the internet and across all media platforms, you don't have a packed show. People aren't going to see you. If your record is not good, no one is going to like you. Yeah. So, you know, like this is vitally important. So we're at a point now where it's very difficult to monetize um, the, the product that we sell because it's hard to notice a direct do dollar value out the back end of it which is where it's created. Making a record is essentially an, invest, an investment in your band's career, but it is not one that is, um, you know, very well, uh, very, very easy to calculate what your actual, you know, dividend that you received from it would yeah. be. So how we do it here is basically, I mean, there's some things we insist on here. Everybody who works here gets a living wage. Mm -hmm. And I insist upon that. We don't pay minimum wage. We pay a living wage. Mm -hmm. And that is not the same number. That's $10 more an hour than what our government thinks currently in British Columbia is a livable wage, yeah. which is not livable or sustainable. So we, we have to charge that. I have to make that. So when there's two people working, we both have to make that. And then there's the rent on the space. And that's pretty much where the where the dollar sits. So in other words, the profit the profit margins of that are very slim, but but everybody who works here is treated properly and actually gets a living wage. 
So what what are the alternatives to that? I guess I could pay people minimum wage and then I could make more profitability and then run a, a less ethical business. That's that would be the alternative choice for us. Um, but I choose not to do that and and prefer to instead just work extra hard and try to um, let people kind of see that the money that we charge is worth it because of the product they get on the back end and the care that people put into it and the attitudes of those who work here. Because do you want to work with people that, you know, feel shitty every day yeah, <laughs> because they're not totally. being paid what they're worth? Um, to me, that's not fair. Um, and I do see like there's a lot of competition from other studios, particularly young upstarts. There's some there's some studios in Vancouver that there's one studio I heard were recently charging $150 a day. And that's to sit at a console that's worth $200,000. So someone's been bought a $200,000 console, or maybe they took out a loan. I don't know that person's financial situation. But I'm like, that race to the bottom is something that is not part of, in my opinion, you know, DIY culture or an ethical work environment. You know, that's something that is not sustainable will not create um, happy people that work there and probably will not yield very good product at the other end of it because it's not, it, it's, it's a race to the bottom that is going to be um, a, a squeeze upon the labor that it takes to create that product. So I want to contrast two things. And, mm -hmm. and I think they, I think you're, you're already saying, saying what I, I think the answer is going to be, but you know, when we look at DBS mm -hmm. and the last record, mm -hmm. So the silk screened it yourself, you recorded it yourself, like mm -hmm. Andy did the art, he mm -hmm. released it itself. Mm -hmm. So everything was tightly controlled and yeah. was DIY to make it as cheap and affordable mm -hmm. and as like in-house as mm -hmm. possible. Yeah. On the flip side, mm -hmm. you also are, are talking about like being a business owner though, mm -hmm. you do have that level of control, but you're much more focused on making it sustainable. Mm -hmm. What DBS was doing at the end, it was the end of the band. It wasn't mm -hmm. sustainable because you weren't trying to go off and be like a to totally vastly touring no, band. You're like, yeah. as we're going out, we're going to do this exactly how we want, mm -hmm. even though we not know it's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. Whereas the way you're doing Rain City Recorders is sustainable mm -hmm. and it is based at actually charging Mm -hmm. a higher amount but that higher amount is about giving everyone what they need yeah. to live effectively and be creative totally so the thing there's, there's there's a few things to unpack about that one of them is that when dbs did their last record it was 1999 or 2000 or something mm -hmm. like that so at that point in time selling um 10,000 albums would be considered a commercial failure yeah. now that'd be considered a commercial success within yeah. the realm of, of of underground music within the realm of alternative punk or hardcore mm -hmm. if you sold 10,000 records that'd be that, insane that's very good yeah, right? yeah, yeah. for us selling 10,000 records might be a failure to us um so that's a different thing and that's to unpack and there's there's something about that that is before streaming that is before you know this sort of musical um demonetization of recorded products that's been going on for whether it be by the industry's choice or not, I think it's more by the disruption of the technology that's created that. So we exist in a different place now. Also in those particular point in time, you know, that was still the concept of punk and hardcore shows being like, they're six bucks, they're five bucks. You know, now, last time I've, I've been out, which is recently, um, shows are often 15 bucks, pay what you can. Yeah. So like, look, if you've got a job, if you make a decent living, if you're going to go spend 50 bucks on beer at the show anyways, maybe 15 bucks is a very fair price for three or four local bands. Yeah. But it's also pay what you can. If you're broke, we're not turning you away from the show. If you're literally broke, say so, no shame, come to the show for free. Fine, you know, music should and art should be for everybody. But those who have money should 
pay a little bit more to support the bands and, and the artists that they that they appreciate. So that's one thing about it. Also, at that time when DBS did the DIY records, you know, we're talking about um, we're talking about a time that um, was sustainably completely different in the sense that the disruptive te technology that we used to create the product was brand new. And it was very keenly aware of those running the more old school and expensive analog studios, how that would affect it. They thought that that, that industry would be eliminated. Mm -hmm. And in a way, they are right. You know, many, many studios closed because the advent of Pro Tools and using software, which enables you so much. Like, for example, you know, now you pay 10 bucks a month to Spotify or Apple or someone like that to have every song on earth. Well, now for 300 bucks, you can buy a piece of software, which gives you a million dollar worth of equipment, technology in your box, like yeah. in your thing. So this is disruptive on both levels at the same time. I was keen to adopt the disruptive technology of digital recording and utilize it to make cheap records for myself and my friends. Yeah. But as time has gone on over that, yeah, the industry of recording has become cheaper it has become less profitable there's no question about it there's lots of services you have to peel back on to make that still sustainable and bands on the other hand the concept of the six dollar show like we need to lose this concept it's yes. not it's not fair it's actually too much value for the consumer who's paying right. to go because that's only 30 minutes of work even at a minimum wage job to yeah. achieve it which is not quite enough for your four hours of fun seeing great musicians play locally right so and you see it on these big touring acts particularly who are just jumping on it and to a degree that i'm also not supportive of paying two thousand dollars to see bruce springsteen he could fuck himself honestly he can fuck himself i will never pay that that's too much two thousand dollars is maybe our month's entire wage to see you for three hours that's also out of step with reality right so so in the case of something like like there's two things that two results happen so we had a we had a disruption in the technology to record the the bands which enabled us to record it for cheaper but also meant that you got paid less to do it but also you had to pay less in maintenance and support i like i do have a nice console now and all these things but ultimately like this is the center of the business which only costs 400 dollars a year to to have this technology so i don't need to pay as much into building it I, ha I do have a large studio now, but that's after 30 years of very, very slow growth. Yeah. But on the other hand, it's created an entire industry that did not exist before for me. When I was recording DBS, I did a fine job. It sounds okay. Other people in my community liked it and hired me to do their jobs, but it's not on the level of quality that a band on a major label or a band that's trying to actually have success would accept now. People right. are expecting of, of a higher quality and the types of compressions and algorithms and things that it go through. By the time you're listening to it on your phone, on Instagram, your data, your music has been shrunk down to a very high degree, which means that it better sound pretty friggin' good for it to sustain that, that shrinkage of going down to being on the phone speaker, yeah. which is incredibly low resolution. So in a way, the demand for high fidelity has become higher as we're listening to music on shittier platforms, like yeah. not home stereos, but we're listening to it on, on phones and laptops and stuff like that.
but also it's created a new a new um, business model, which is people recording themselves at home, like DBS was, but hiring professionals to mix it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's something that people are willing to spend money on because it's really obvious to see the value at the other end because trying to mix your own music is difficult and often sounds kind of crappy. Whereas hiring a professional to do it, you'll be like, wow, that's so much better than I could have possibly made it. And the fans at the other end who are listening to it on all these different platforms, earbuds, cars, phones, laptops, hi-fi systems, like everything, the movies, the TV, everything, that translatability of it is, is something that a professional is required to kind of achieve. And that's worth spending money at. And you can definitely find a way to monetize it in the sense of playing bigger shows when your reach is greater. Uh, I love that you brought up um, that idea of like punk and hardcore and under underground music evolving the model of the economy mm -hmm. in that this is why i wanted to contrast both dbs as, as dbs was kind of going out that final record mm -hmm. and then also how you um, navigate the business world now i think people in general when they're starting in any kind of endeavor where there's not like a lot of regulation or clear mm -hmm. pricing guidelines yeah struggle with pricing yourself absolutely well. yeah so my company uh, i remember the f the second company retreat we did my whole team at the yeah. time which was like five people yeah. they had like a they had like took over the ship it was like a mutiny they're yeah. like we're charging more money you have to and they yeah. forced me to totally. and i was like i actually like had like a really hard time with charging mm -hmm. uh what i what i'm worth and yeah i did it at first because i was new in the industry i mm -hmm. wanted to outgun my competitors mm -hmm. and i wanted to bring greater value for a lower price yeah and i got good at it uh, I made a space in the market, but when I made that space in the market, I became very reticent to raise it. I was like, oh, well, what if people leave? Mm -hmm. And people yeah. were like, everyone on my team was like, this is unsustainable. Yeah. What you're doing is you're not paying yourself enough. You're working crazy hours. It's yeah. not good for us. Mm -hmm. So we raised our prices. Nobody blinked. Yeah, totally. Raised them again a few years later. Nobody blinked. Yeah. And we just did our most recent price raise, which is all just about keeping up with like cost of living, market mm -hmm. value, all mm -hmm. that very, mm -hmm. very small price. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Price raise. Exactly. Just for Yeah. But I had to get used to it. And part of it was, hey, I'm a consultant. I, I, I'm starting a business. I'm earning my space. So I will earn the right to charge more money. Yeah. But part of it was because I came up in punk and hardcore and it was like $5 shows, you mm -hmm. know, all of these things. Mm -hmm. And so much of this is based on like kind of like that Discord model. Exactly. Yeah. Which was amazing. Like the best, yeah. the best. Like it, it disrupted, you know, we're talking about the yeah. music industry being disruptive. It disrupted mm -hmm. the music industry. Exactly. And it doesn't mean that it 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 still isn't a useful model to as a starting ground, but it's For also sure. being too chained to something that's that people started doing in the late seventies or early eighties mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. doesn't make perfect sense in twenty twenty two. We do not live in the same world anymore and you have yeah. to adapt to that. Right. Yeah. And the thing and the thing is, like, like you talk about when you started your business, you were charging a lower price to get into the market to 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 offer a service. But you also had less experience as a, as a person, as a consultant to do the work you were doing. And therefore, you should be paid less for it. You know, your experience does not command as high a price. But as time and, and as time goes on, you know, yeah, you feel you know resistant to to the price increase and you're concerned as a business owner about about raising it. And you're going to lose your clients and all kind of stuff. But the thing is, is that. It's okay to move into that higher range of market when you can afford to and navigate it. And you can do it slowly and thoughtfully because there's someone else younger than you and less experienced than you that could take the space of the cheaper person, right? right. There's, um, there's, a, there's a motto that we always use in recording, and I'm sure other industries use it too, which is better, faster, cheaper, pick two. Mm -hmm. You can have something cheaper and you might get it 
you know, faster and you might get it cheaper, but it's not going to be better. Mm -hmm. You know, you can, you can have something better, but it's not going to be cheaper mm -hmm. as, uh, but it also might be faster, yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm faster and better than people that are less experienced than me, but I'm not cheaper than them. And that's fine. You know, you don't want to live. We're not looking to live in a society where everything costs the same and everybody has the same experience level. Like what you're essentially talking about is sort of a, you know, communistic like style of society, um, and that's not a, that's not how North American life is or works. That's not how business operates here. It's not how politics works here um, or the monetary system. So, you know, you're operating within a capitalistic society where there is a range of, of services and a range of quality and a range of prices. Mm -hmm. And although that system is, you know, increasingly showing its flaws, and I think there's so many um, flaws that have probably been an entire other podcast episode to get into, you know, what those flaws are. I'm sure we are all thinking about them because it's pretty mainstream to to understand what this sort of uh, whether you believe in trickle up or trickle down economics or whatever. There's there's we're, we're at a place where things are very dynamic. Um, in that part of society, but within operating business, that is money in versus services provided, you know, we're at a place where, where, in my opinion, charging as little as possible for as poor a service as possible is ultimately like what I think of as the, the McDonald's model. Yeah. McDonald's does is the most profitable hamburger restaurant on the earth. And it's not mm. because it's the best hamburger. It's because it's the cheapest hamburger. So they've, they've thought themselves, how can I make a burger so cheap and still have people willing to eat it? Mm. I'll, I'll mow down the Amazon rainforest to get there. I'll do whatever I have to do to make it as cheap as possible. But for me, when I want to consume a hamburger at the wage that I make, I'm going to go to the mom and pop restaurant because I know the quality is better. I know the staff gets paid more. Yeah. I know it tastes better. I can appreciate the quality. And obviously that's at my particular level of wealth. There's people that can't afford to eat anything but McDonald's. And that's a, that's a whole other topic conversation. But we don't want to be necessarily the McDonald's of recording, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Well, yeah. And, and also like you did something there that I think is important to notice. Like it's okay to talk about making money. Not not yeah. you, but like yeah, yeah. we do live and I'm not talking about political systems, but we do mm -hmm. live in a, in a society in North America that operates on a capitalistic system. Yeah. And whenever I start talking about this, not whenever, very often when I'm talking to, to people who come from like a, a background of, of any kind of creative space, mm -hmm. and it doesn't have to be punk and hardcore, it could be painters, it could be any anyone. When we get into the conversation about money, it almost always goes like, well, you know, the system's flawed and it's broken or people are like, oh, you know, these billionaires. It's like, yeah, but mm -hmm. listen, we're not either. We're not billionaires yeah. and we don't run the system. But mm -hmm. what we are are creative people who are trying yeah. to figure out how to make a proper living wage for ourselves, build, mm -hmm. build businesses. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I really encourage anyone who's coming from, if you're starting your own business at all, whatever it is, mm -hmm. you have to become comfortable with the money conversation. Yeah. And you have to understand your worth. Yeah. There's some industries where it's super clear, but there are many where it's not. Exactly. Like what, it, what what is my business worth? Well, what my business is worth, the way that I always boil it down is if I call someone, whether or not they answer the phone, if I call one of my clients unexpectedly, mm -hmm. who are all very busy people, yeah. if I call them unexpectedly, will they take my call or call me back right away? Right. That means what they're paying me is worth it because yeah. they recognize, hey, the time that I spend with this guy is actually important. Yeah. It matters to my process and how I lead and how I run my company. If I call people or email people and they don't respond to me, then I'm probably charging too much or I'm not effective in what I do. Totally. Um, when I think of creative people and music, art, whatever, or anyone starting any kind of business, 
knowing your value is the most central thing. And there's tons of things like charging a lower price to build an audience totally. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of things that I I fundamentally disagree with. Um, So for example, um, exposure is payment. Yeah. That is bullshit. I agree. And you've, you've mentioned this um, when you're doing your pre-call, like um, unpaid internships, Mm -hmm. things like these, these are bullshit ways where people are being manipulated for their creative, Mm -hmm. their, their work, all of these things, they're being taken advantage of people. So anything you want to share on that, your philosophy? I do. Yeah. Like, um, you know, er earlier on in our career, you know, in in the previous studio I used to work at, we used to take on unpaid internships and, and those people were there, you know, by, by choice and they, they wanted to do that. And I, I understand the argument for that. But there's um, but there's a point in that I feel like you are doing labor, and and labor is worth money. And the problem with with a lot of businesses doing unpaid internships is that they're exploitive of those who are doing the internship. They're expecting incredibly long hours, incredibly stressful jobs, or even be belittled. There's um, there's a culture in recording um where you're supposed to. It's almost like a. I think it sort of comes or, or is maybe similar to chef culture, where the chef screams at you and and belittles you and you are a cook trying to like you know like screaming you to chop the onions faster or some shit like that you know to me there's no scenario where i'm screaming at anybody you know i don't scream at my interns i don't make them work for free there are some scenarios where you know like in this case i'm actually taking on i feel like a hypocrite because i'm taking on an unpaid internship um it's a young man from belgium whose university has directed him to come work for me. Uh, I've, I've done a few records in Belgium that were very, very successful. And as such, I'm uh, the university where they have quite a good one of recording in Belgium, um, in Brussels, has sent two interns now to, to learn from me. And I have to sign a waiver agreeing that I will not pay them anything. So well, this is that's the, a different model. This is the yeah, this is the university saying, you know, this person as the final project is to actually work in a studio for two months and yeah. to literally learn how we interact with people like like the things that they can't teach like they can teach them how to use the microphones yeah this guy needs to know how to run a session how to do the timing so in this case i am but to me i just see it like and you see it happening in the film industry a lot too where people are expected to work at highly skilled jobs for minimum wage and they're not working for me they're working for huge corporations making movies and tv shows that cost millions of dollars Mm. and the human sacrifice is the part where they skimp on you know they don't skimp on these other aspects they don't skimp on what the you know maybe some of the other staff are getting paid maybe some of the people that the 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 companies that sound a profit often are getting paid they skimp on the human aspect of it and that's where I think in the arts, like we need to, it's a fine line between putting your foot down and saying, hey, this is what I'm worth. This is what my value is um, and losing, maybe potentially losing the gig. But also I've found that you can really be surprised in that maybe your customers actually do value your work and appreciate that they've done it the cheaper way and want to have the better way. They, when they've picked their two values um, of the three that I described, which is better, faster, and cheaper, maybe they've picked um, better and faster and cheaper was actually not the value they picked out of you as a, as a person they're hiring to do the work. Um, I like to think that my, my clients choose that. And again, I don't charge as much as possible. When you call me, I don't think to myself, oh, how much can I squeeze you for? How much, how much can you afford? But often it sort of, but it started to kind of become obvious to me at some point in time that, oh, my clients are actually mostly more well off than me, and some of these bands get paid really well. Like I, I, I record bands that 
get paid thousands of dollars per performance. Yeah. And we're only charging hundreds of dollars per day. So this is not necessarily out of line with that model. In the case of the music industry, it's just kind of funny because I feel like the product we create it's not well monetized. So it ends up being your success that we create that becomes the product. And that's what's really difficult to kind of, it's it's hard to put it on a balance sheet, but yeah. the bands are starting to also understand that too, because I have more and more clients that come to me and say, man, I love the sound of that turnstile record. You know, those guys are doing really well. They're headlining major festivals in Europe. They're crossing over, not just from punk and hardcore, but they're crossing over into mainstream music mm -hmm. as well. Like people who, people are working out to turnstile at the gym. Yeah. You know, who don't even listen to punk, you know, and I'm like, well, they that record did not create itself. And anybody who has any idea how re records are made, which is most bands can listen to that record and say this was made with a great care and attention to detail by somebody who is also very unique. Like the thing about that record, it doesn't sound like other punk and harder records. It's cleaner. It's 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 prettier in a way, but yeah. it's also but but still cool, and uh, it's a record I like. Um, you know, even though I can appreciate that it's glossier in a different way. Yeah. You know, I don't know. So, just as like a, a funny story to add to it. So mm -hmm. you know, the band that that I play in, which you're familiar yeah. with, um, we were supposed to do this uh, tour this fall. Yeah. Uh, and we had you know kind of like all booked our time off work and everything. Yeah. And shortly before the tour came, the conditions of the tour changed and yeah. they, they cut our pay by down to one third of, oh, of what yeah. we were initially offered. Yeah. And I talked about it with the guys and we were like, yeah, this is just not right. Like we can't no. do this. And our drummer, who's like a, quite a, um, he's, he's done a lot of stuff musically. Mm -hmm. He was like, yeah, like we can't, I can't, like we cannot do this as a yeah. group of people. Yeah. And we're all like older people. We played a lot and it wasn't an ego thing. It was more of a like, Hey, you need to pay us what we're worth. Like mm -hmm. we're not worth a ton, but we're worth more than what you're, you're not nobody's. Yeah. And, and you're adding value to that show. Well, even if the value is like, Hey, we're the semi kind of entertaining thing before the, before the main event, yeah. it's like, we're the, even that buffer. But the thing that I really thought about was like, hey, this isn't a short amount of time. This is like three weeks of my life. Yeah. And I'm not, and that means I'm not going to be with my kid. I'm not going to yeah. be working. I'm going to yeah. be doing all the stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So we went back and we we're like, no, like you're going to have to pay us what this, this amount, which was still low for us yeah. in the yeah. first place. And yeah. they said, no. So we passed on, we passed on it. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that kind of came up in that was the, well, if you do this tour, it's mm -hmm. going to set you up for other tours. It was kind of, yeah. and and it's not, it wasn't an inaccurate conversation. It was the, if you do this, it will mm -hmm. lead to other things. Mm -hmm. But also it's like, oh, I'm 48. Yeah. Music is not how I make my living. Yeah. Um, I want music to just be fun and, and be plugged into like just feeling good and, yeah. and doing yeah, that. Yeah. And do I want to play like huge shows and do mm -hmm. like big festivals? Of course I do. Of course. But do I want to do something do I want to go on a tour for three weeks and get paid some totally insane short amount of little amount mm -hmm. of money for it? That feels wrong. Then no, I don't want to do it. Definitely. And I don't think the band that offered us was wrong. Yeah. I don't think the booking agents were wrong. No, it's but, a choice. But they're, they're choosing the wrong audience. Yeah. We're all just established musicians, grown adults. We run businesses. Yeah. They, they were pitching the idea to the wrong audience. Yeah. And, and what they wanted was an experienced band that had a name, yeah. but they wanted to pay us like an inexperienced band that had no name. Exactly, yeah. And one of the things that I think is like, and you, you hit it perfectly. When I started my my company, we were, we were the new kid on the block. I mm -hmm. would charge way less than I charge yeah. now because yeah, yeah. I'm trying to get in the door. But yeah. now if someone was like, hey, 
we'll pay you X, like, you know, what I charged six years ago, I'd be like, absolutely not. And nobody's wrong in that. I don't think it's wrong if people want a deal, but if you're, if you're asking an established entity Mm -hmm. for a deal, you're barking up the wrong tree and you're, you're being unintentionally insulting to them. Whereas if you offer someone to someone who's honest, like not established and trying to like build themselves up a smaller amount, that Mm -hmm. makes sense. But you shouldn't bargain with that person either. You should pay people what they're asking. Well, I think we've arrived then at, um, at, at, at what, what, the, what the answer is to the question we're debating, which is that as you get bigger and you, as you get more successful in your business and more experienced, to occupy the space of the inexperienced is a disservice to them and you. Totally. Right? So, so you, are in a ba- you are an experienced musician. You have a pedigree that, that's worthwhile. And when a band comes to town, if there's a headliner that... I kind of like, but maybe wouldn't definitely see them on their own. And then there's an opening act that I also really like, or maybe I've heard they're really good and I'm curious. Well, that's value added. That might be the difference between me paying, like it's it's 30 or 40 or $50 to see a touring band often now these days, even within the alternative music space. And, um, and for me to pay up the 35 bucks for the ticket, if there's two good bands, one of which I kind of I've always wanted to see, but they're not my favorite band. And then an opening band that I'm really curious about and I've heard are awesome live. Well, that's going to tip me over the scales as the consumer, as the customer to buy that. And, 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 and for you as a band or in any business working for too cheap a price, well, now you're operating the space of the 20 year olds that maybe have no pedigree and have no, you know, that, and have no value to that. And also the, the cost of living gets more as you go up, you have, you are, you have a dependent, you have a child, you have a business, you have us, you have things that are needed to sustain your adult life in the way that, that you've worked hard to achieve. So it's, it's the same thing for me charging $150 a day for me to work for 15 bucks an hour is taking away the space of a kid in his basement who charges that, that that's all it's worth. Totally. That used to be me. Yes. And when I used to charge eight bucks an hour 20 years ago, back when that was minimum wage, like 15 bucks an hour is now in, in British Columbia or whatever it is, it's somewhere around there. It's um, back then I was not occupying the space of the big studio. I was offering a worse product for a cheaper price. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and, and that was the people would choose the, the cheaper and 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 the the faster but they're not choosing the better yeah. you know they, the, the better was reserved for the bigger studio so mm-hmm. again the, these two these two aspects have been chosen but not all three mm-hmm. and maybe you need to shift your kind of model to being like hey i'm faster because i'm experienced and i'm better because i have experience as well but i'm not cheaper you know that's for that's for that other space and that's how a, a, a healthy um society a healthy economy should probably run you know you need totally. to you need to occupy all the spaces and maybe also to give a little credit where credit's due mcdonald's fields feeds the world and it feeds the world to people who make minimum wage and can't afford to eat the 20 dollars burger like some of us can sometimes totally. so you know it, it's and, and they and they do occupy that space but for you to do that when you're if mcdonald's was offering the the, the quality product of, of something much more well then that's that's not healthy competition. That's unhealthy competition. Well, if we go to like kind of a McDonald's model and, and man, I, I love what you just said, that whole idea that's like, listen, there, there is a whole uh, ecosystem of businesses. Mm-hmm. And when you stay in a space for too long, yeah. you're, you're keeping that growth yeah. from going on. Going to like more of that McDonald's model, I'll go to something that um, mm-hmm. uh, Chris uh, from, from Kerr said, uh, Chris Collin, who's a, just a really inspirational guy to me, really, really smart, cool dude. Um, we were chatting and he was talking about we're talking about like um, as vegans and, mm-hmm. and 
can we should we look at something like McDonald's as a good thing? Mm-hmm. And he had such a great point. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, I'm just gonna... He had such a great point. And his point was like, listen, like when we were kids, what we were kind of fighting for in a lot of ways was that vegan food would be accessible by everyone mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that every restaurant would have vegan food. And mm-hmm. he's like, so in one way, if McDonald's has a vegan burger, mm-hmm. mission accomplished. Yeah. He's like, but I think the conversation goes a little bit deeper is that McDonald's doesn't want the meat eaters. They don't want the cheap meaters. They don't yeah. want the expensive meaters. They yeah. don't want the vegans. It's like, they don't care about any of it. All yeah. they want is all of the money. Yeah, exactly. And it was like, you know, if you really think about it, it's about like an oligarchy. Yeah. And so if we break that down, if I think about my business, it's like, I don't want all the business. No. I want a very specific kind of business. Yeah. I know who my audience is. Yeah. And I keep moving my my company towards that audience, yeah. just like you keep moving. I want the good bands. I don't want the crappy bands. Right. Let the 20-year-old record the crappy bands. I want yeah. to record the good bands. Right. So experienced musicians. <laughs> that's that thing about like growing a business, developing a business. Like money's not a bad conversation. It's a good conversation because it also allows you to understand like what's ethical for you, mm-hmm. what's appropriate for you, what's appropriate to ask people for money, but also how to move your, your company so that there's space for the people who come behind you. Mm-hmm. There's people for the space ahead of you. And mm-hmm. we're all adding to that ecosystem um with that how did you start getting comfortable when and how did you start getting comfortable with saying no or dictating back the terms that people would have to respect in order to work with you well for me it was actually similar to what you described where it's like some of your colleagues and 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 peers and staff around you and stuff like that started demanding that you that you that you charge more and and it was sort of explained to me in such a way that that like you know, again, it's like, do you want to participate in the race to the bottom? Do you want to suck the 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 quality out, or do you want to to demand what you're worth? And for me, I mean, I'm not I'm not saying that I've necessarily even achieved the balance of where I think that is. This is an ongoing thing in flux, particularly like in um in a in a in an industry that's been demonetized, an industry that's been been disrupted um very very much so by technology, particularly over the last twenty years, but also for all time, um. And and for me, I don't know if there was an exact turning point. It's something that, you know, it's a tap you turn on very gradually and you you play the waters and you you see what people can actually afford. Um, you know, also like you just have to also it, it comes down to a little bit and a belief in yourself as well, where you have to say like, hey, like. Am I going to lose a client over five bucks an hour? Like if five bucks an hour is the difference between you working with me or working with the guy recording in his mom's basement like I used to be, then maybe I'm not good enough or or maybe I don't believe in myself enough. But I can but I can but I can I'm confident that I do have skills to bring to the table that that the less experienced person has. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a belief in yourself. Um, and it's also just, again, to look at it being like, like, what is. Like for me, like going back to the kind of like, you know, sort of discord model, as you described it, or the $6, $5 show model, you kind of looked at that when I was a teenager and I understood it as being like capitalism is charging as much as you possibly can all the time. And it is. But capitalism, capitalism is also charging as little as possible all of the time. The race to the bottom, how cheap to make the burger. That's capitalism too. Capitalism is, at its best is when people are successfully making an honest living and can, can exist in a middle-class lifestyle to some degree where they don't have to be in poverty for the, or they don't have to work themselves to death or something like that, which, which is literally happening all over the world every single day. So to me, I had to kind of shed that notion that capital, like, like that charging more 
was was capitalism and that's bad you know that's 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 greed or mm -hmm. something like that but it's not greed is charging too little mm -hmm. charging too little is greed charging too little puts the pressure on the human cost of running the business the human cost of providing the burger and we can see the damage that that does like mcdonald's mowing down the amazon rainforest to grow more cattle you know there's 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 an in-between there's a sweet spot that exists and and the middle class of kind of capitalistic north american lifestyle is something that's in a very precarious balance more so every year more so as we go through time and sort of see how the economic models that have been you know, manipulated and exploited by governments and taxation policies and stuff like that have not really trickled down to the working class. In fact, they've seemed to be trickling up and statistically have been trickling up for years. Um, we kind of get to that point where you're operating somewhere within the middle of these two sides that are pulling apart. And the, the, the belief in yourself and the belief in your brand and your business, I mean, it takes a little bit of ego to kind of like, like believe in yourself and, and have the courage to, to, to say, Hey, I'm, I'm going to work hard. There's also ways that you can add value with, you know, two people's cost. Like, for example, you know, we sort of talked about how do I operate a business in, in a space that in a disruptive space like this, like the recording industry, the music industry, which is, you know, a shitty kind of industry in a lot of ways, but also capable of being very profitable if you're good at it or sustainable, even in the case of, of this studio, which has, which it has been now for 25 years. So like, to me, it's like, there's certain things that we don't do that other studios would have done back then. Like, you know, you used to sit in a, a chair that massages your back while, you know, between your vocal takes. Here you sit on a regular chair. You know, you used to be like, I provide, you? I provide you gourmet gourmet coffee throughout your entire session. Uh, now I'm like around, you know, we're going down the street to JJB and grabbing a coffee because, you know, it's coffee break. I don't, I, don't, I don't provide your food for you while you're here, you know, but also you don't pay for that either. Like, yeah. like what you pay is actually goes to, you know, me and my assistant engineer and our landlords too. But um, so there's, you know, it's, 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 it's a funny place to be in, in that way. And, and sometimes it's really at odds with some of my upbringing and being like, how can we make this cheaper? How can we make this yeah. more DIY? But I started to realize that, that that notion is actually more capitalistic in a way. And, you know, charging as much as possible for everything you do. Well, there's a risk in that because you might have less customers. Totally. Man. People can feel that, too. Well, and yeah, I it's it's an interesting balance, you know, because, again, I, I'm always thinking of like, unless you work for a big corporation that dictates prices, this discourse mm. that we're having right now, like, yeah. that's it. That's yeah. this is the thing that people think about. Yeah. And I'll go back to this experience of like, we didn't, we like, basically, we didn't, I don't know if we, if I'd say we turned down a tour, I guess we did. Mm. But after we asked, like, hey, no, like, we have to go back. And they're like, no, that, that's the offer. Mm -hmm. So we didn't do the tour. Yeah. I, I'll tell you this. I've done tours. Yeah. I've played shows. Yeah. And I've made records. Mm -hmm. And doing something that felt inherently wrong yeah like felt like no like i'm mm -hmm. not giving up two and a half weeks or three weeks with my kid i'm not like i'm not gonna ask my bandmates to do this like i'm not gonna do that for such a small amount of money yeah. and at the end of the day it's not even about the money it's about like hey man like 
you're not wrong for asking this, but I'd be wrong for agreeing to it. Exactly. And that, 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 that brings to mind um, just a few scenarios. Like, like I told you, when I first started this business in my parents' basement when I was 14 years old, I um, charged, you know, minimum wage, right? And that's also the quality of product I was offering was a minimum wage type quality. Um, and, and, and that was fine at that point in time. But, but you know, you don't want to set that bar so low that you can never ever um you know recover from it like you don't you don't want to end up feeling emotionally taken advantage of for me at that point in time i did not feel taken advantage of by offering such a cheap rate because i was like i could work at the coffee shop i could work at or i could work in my studio and i'd rather do music than coffee yeah. Yeah. so it's um for me it, I, I didn't feel emotionally bad about it because that was the price that, that we agreed upon yeah. and the only times i've ever felt like i got ripped off um, by a client um, or a friend, you know, working in the studio was when I worked for free or when I worked for, for a price that I didn't feel comfortable with. That was the only time I ever felt bad. And that was probably one of the only times I've ever actually even lost a, a client or lost a customer um, was just because the, the, the balance wasn't right. I didn't feel good about it. And, 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 and then therefore the project actually didn't go very well. And out the other side, no one was really satisfied with the results, in, including, including me. Hmm. So you can work for less money you can work for cheap if your value is less by all means work for cheap get your experience get your foot in the door of business but you have to be psychologically okay with that price yeah. when the when the hip-hop guys down the street that wanted me to help them make their beats and were happy to pay me eight bucks an hour i felt good when they'd leave at the end of the day they'd be like oh cool man we got to hang out make some beats and and this guy helped us with the technology that he's good at and and helped us you know understand like how to how to get get our, our rap and clearing on time you know and it's like i helped him with that and um and and I felt good about it too because I was like, hey, that's one less day that I'm not doing what I want, what I did want to do, and one more day when I'm doing what I do want to do. But and as that time has gone on, that number has changed in my mind too. Like for now, you know, if I was going to work for you for ten bucks an hour or fifteen bucks an hour, well, if I agreed to do that, I, there's a scenario where I could agree to do that. But but if I agreed to do that, I would have to be okay with that and not carry that through the session. Like if my best friends came to me and said, Jesse, I've only got 15 bucks an hour to pay you, but I really want to make this record. It's meaningful to me. I'm, you know, I'm hoping you like the music. And if it was my bestest and oldest brand and they came to me with that dilemma, I'd say, if I felt like I was okay, if I loved the music, I'd say, yeah, let's do it. Okay, fine. And then I wouldn't complain about it. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't carry that with me. But um, if I was just chewed down by somebody that didn't want to pay my normal rate and I wasn't comfortable with it, I'm not doing a service to anybody. They're actually better served by somebody who's comfortable with that price. To, uh, totally. And people are never wrong for looking for a deal because, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, that's, that's just the way we're that's raised. Competition. Yeah, totally. yeah, that's competition. Totally. But you as a, as a business owner and as someone who's doing something like you're out on your own, people aren't wrong for looking for a deal, but you can be wrong for agreeing to it because yeah. your ability to sustain that is going to be mm -hmm. very short, how yeah. you feel about psychologically and your end product is yeah. going to be strong. Let's, uh, let's shift to something. Yeah. So one of the things I think about a lot when I, whenever I think about just people I know who are engineers and work mm -hmm. in this space is there's kind of like two clear paths. And I'm sure there's more than that, but there's like one path you already identified. It's like you go to school for it. Yeah. You know, you, you're, you're cleaning the toilets at a studio. You're kind of working your way up until you get there. Mm -hmm. But another path is, hey, like what happened to the bass on Injustice for All? Like, yeah. Oh, check out that kick drum. Yeah. And yeah. then figuring it out along the line. Mm -hmm. Your story is the person who 
didn't do the traditional go to school, engineering school, yeah. all that. You just figured it out along the way. And in many ways, the people that I, I love speaking to the most mm -hmm. are the people who don't ask for permission. They're like, oh, I want to do this. I'll do it. Yeah. And okay, here's the traditional path. There's nothing wrong with that, but I'm going to do it this way, my own mm -hmm. way. So if you're thinking about, if I'm thinking about your story, so much of it is about uh, something's presented to you, like getting yeah. a justice for all from your friend's brother, <laughs> you know, like, mm -hmm. like, yeah. yeah, and you went with it. DBS, you went with it. Mm -hmm. Like these things, you just went with it and you, you've turned it into a career. Yeah. So how did you get that comfortable with just figuring it out and making it go? Well, I mean, let's speak positively for a moment about the Discord model. And for those who, who don't follow punk and hardcore in this in this podcast, like, you know, it was a it was a DIY record label that provided amazing quality records and amazing bands at really affordable prices, cheap shipping, cheap shows to see the bands. There was a great model and through the 90s. They were very successful and sold hundreds of thousands, if not millions of records. Um, but that model also, you know, taught us some really positive things, which is that you can do it yourself. You can do it, you know. You know, like mm. if you are, are passionate about something, you you will want to put the work into it. And and for me, like I just I I didn't follow the traditional model because a my my experience was was already exceeding of of the the earlier parts of what one of those programs would have been. Perhaps the programs like the recording programs could have expedited my knowledge of that of 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 the art form or of the technology. But um, but in the case of me, because I started so young, like I first started hanging out in recording studios when I was 12 years old, like DBS started when we were 12. Mm -hmm. I went, I spent my summer, the summer of seventh grade, I spent in a recording studio recording my first underground punk rock album, you know, so like 1992, right? So, so for me, like I already knew about the process. I already knew about the the the, the etiquette or the conduct of of running a session. Um, not to say that those people that taught me are exactly the way I conduct myself, but they have some very. They are both nice people and positive people and people that I had fun. I, I felt good leaving the place. Right. I think that's key on any business. Again, going back to a restaurant, if you feel good when you're leaving there, maybe you're going to come back. You know, yeah, yeah. if you feel crappy when you're leaving there for any aspect, you're not coming back. Yeah. So. This is a service-based industry, first and foremost, beyond the technology, beyond the creativity. It's, it's a service that we're providing to people. So anyways, the service aspects of it are something that I already felt like I sort of keenly understood from being um, involved in it. And I think that that's actually maybe potentially more difficult to learn than the technology itself, which if you're passionate about technology, you'll, you'll, you'll probably be able to figure it out. Also, there's the internet, there's books, there's everything that you, there's any number of ways you could learn the experience, especially with software. I mean, start screwing around with a piece of software, you will figure it out eventually. That's how software works. The learning curve is kind of steep. And then eventually you start to crest and it becomes comparable. That's Photoshop. That's video editing software that's everything that's 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 excel it's like that you know there's 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 standards that you learn um so for me i think it was like because i already understood some of the more difficult parts of it which is you know conduct and, and and the people skills part of it um the technology of it was just something that i had to learn to get in my way and also i, I felt like i understood a lot of the art aspects of it mm -hmm. So for me, getting the technology to behave in the way that I hear the sound of my mind was the biggest hurdle. And I'm not there yet. I'm, I'm actually not satisfied with the records that I'm working on yet. I'm, I'm actively pursuing better sound than I currently achieve all the time. Um, and that's to the point that last night I was driving to the grocery store 
I listened to the record I mixed yesterday. I listened to the record I mixed last week, and I noticed how yesterday sounded a bit better than the, than the previous week's record. So, you know, which made me happy. Yeah. <laughs> was, oh, good. I've made some progress. But there, yeah. there is a distinct difference between people wanting to do something and people doing it. Like, think yeah. how many people that you know who didn't make their record or didn't follow their career path, mm-hmm. didn't become a photographer, didn't become a painter, didn't start a business. What was it ever a choice for you? Or were you just like, was, was it not even conscious? You just went and did it. Well, it's funny because there was, um, as I, um, you know, I've been recording through high school and as I started to graduate high school in 1996, um, I um, was told by the, my colleagues that these disruptive technologies were coming or by my friends even, or other people in the music industry, not to say my colleagues, I wasn't, because I wasn't a professional yet, um, that disruptive technologies would, would potentially, you know, eradicate the industry as I know it, and that I shouldn't get my feet into that. But uh, I had the support of my community around me that kind of told me otherwise, like, uh, um, for example, Reserve 34, you know, a fantastic straight-edge hardcore band from Vancouver who were, they knew I probably sucked or, you know, didn't have my shit together or barely any equipment, but they were like, they wanted to make the record with me anyways, because there yeah. was like, they, 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 they knew that I'd help them and be nice to them. And I also did it for cheap. I did it for 10 bucks an hour or whatever. Um, became kind of a popular record um, or became a, you know, a cult classic amongst their, amongst their, their peers and some other people in the scene. But, um, you know, my community around me believed in, in, in me and supported me in doing that. And also, you know, were patient with me and my attempt to get, to get better at what I was doing. So I think I was lucky in that way. Also, like, you know, I come from a place of privilege, you know, I live in, I grew up in suburban Canada from a stable household, parents with a middle-class income, you know, like, like I have a, a greater safety net than somebody that, that grew up in poverty. So I was able to be more risky in my, you know, business rewards. Like I had parents that let me record punk and hardcore bands in the basement. I also had parents that subjected me to punk and hardcore at a younger age, despite the fact I did not want to hear that. I remember being four or five years old and just being like, mom, what is this noise? She's like, it's Black Flag, it's DOA, you know, like, like, if you don't like it, shut up. I don't care. Go play in your room, you know, yeah. like get the fuck out of my face. Um, so I was also forced to listen to it against my will. And then uh, when I was a teenager, I forced, <laughs> forced them. to listen to it. Yeah. And then I forced them to listen to it. I guess they're well. Um, actually, I got a funny story. Can I, can I add some comedy to the podcast? Recording this band, Reserve 34, the singer Matt, who I'm pretty sure is straight edge, he got his kicks off by recording in the nude. So instead of drinking 12 beers and doing his, his vocals, he took off, off all his clothes and did his vocals. And my mom came home from grocery shopping kicked over the door, you boys want some lunch? And there's Matt, who, you know, we're 19, he's a grown-ass man, um, you know, and, he, and he's nude, and I'm there with my mixing console hanging out with a naked man who's screaming his head off. Um, so they, they had to be subjected to that. And, well, and just sidebar, yeah. if for anyone who who's not, who's, uh, not familiar with the band, Reserve 34 were such... I would say are like, like they're just an important band for uh, Canada, West coast, punk and hardcore. Mm -hmm. They did something that was like, like that perfect straddling of the line of punk and hardcore kind of like almost the way good riddance does it, you know, like that kind of perfect straddling melodic and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, But like with that level of aggression, really heartfelt, um, that band was so cool. The recording was really cool Mm -hmm. because it was like just a, it was recorded by someone who loved the band yeah, and yeah. you could feel it. Yeah, it's weird. Uh, but that music <laughs> cool. stands the test of time. For So yeah. anyone who who uh, um, doesn't know about it, check it out. I don't know if there's stuff's online, but I know 
gosh, my friend Drew re-released all their stuff on 10 inch yeah. a few years ago. I remixed it for that. Once I got better, they came back to me and I remixed it for the record. Yeah. When it got a vinyl pressing five years down the road, I, I, I'd become better and I fixed it. What was the name of the label? <laughs> Specimen remember. 23 or something like that. I can't remember. I uh, have it. It's up there somewhere. But <laughs> Check it out though. Reserve 34 um, and shout out to those dudes. Yeah. Uh, and thanks for all of that great, yeah. great stuff. And the record was called Rain City Games. And, yeah, uh, and when right. my old partner Stu named the studio, he named it after the record. Um, which was the first full length record I ever recorded. So amazing, amazing. yeah, that's kind of a little bit of a piece of history. But, uh, all right. Yeah. So let's go into the the last part of our conversation sure. here. Cause it's like, it's something I've actually experienced with you as well mm -hmm. is when you're in the engineer seat or the producer seat or both, and you've got a band, there yeah. is a leadership component. Of yeah. It, right. You've got these people who've spent weeks, months, or even years writing something mm -hmm. and they come mm -hmm. to you and they're putting it in your hands. Mm -hmm. But also those people spent weeks, months, years arguing with each other over yeah. like yeah. how things should sound. Mm -hmm. So you get a group of people or even one person who comes in to record something. And there is a ton of psychology that's involved in that. Yeah. Getting the right take, keeping people in the seat, yeah. keeping yeah, yeah, people yeah. like on, on track. Mm -hmm. So if you're thinking about from the lens of leadership, how does that play into how you work with people? Yeah, so for me, like this is kind of really um, this has a, a has a equatable component in the in the film industry as a lot of other things in the recording industry do too. So in the film industry, the director, as best as I understand it, I don't work in that space, but the director is kind of um, involved in the artistry of the shot, like right. the framing of the shot and and how this is going to look and be perceived by, by people. But the producer. Uh, is in is in charge of the logistics of the shot, making sure that the right staff and the right timelines are being met, so that the shot is a success and and operates within the financial um, requirements of that day and, and that particular moment in this film. Um, now, when we thought think about the producer role, like I talked about earlier in the interview, that, that's sort of often seen as a, the creative director of of a recording session. But I also, because I kind of come at this from a from a blue collar point of view, like like I said earlier, even early in my career, I'd be like. I charge this much per hour. I get paid for every hour I work. Even if it's a low wage, I still get paid something every hour. And that's the kind of blue collar aspect of me. It's sort of like a union. I grew up in a union family. You know, it's kind of my dad's electrician. You know, like that's kind of, you, are, you, you know, this has a standardized wage that you should be paid for what you do. In this case, it's established by me, unfortunately, but, <laughs> but, uh, or fortunately, but, but in the case of this, what you're talking about, that is like production. That is like, you know, you've come to me and say, Jesse, I have X thousands of dollars to make this record. I'm like, these are the amount of time we can afford to have the staff. I can hire an assistant for two days, you know, and pay her what she is deserved of that time, which is a living wage, not minimum wage. You know, I can do all these things for this amount of time. We agree on the number. But then I feel like it's sort of up to me to kind of meet those targets. Mm -hmm. And when I see someone struggling to meet that target, they I might need to pivot to have a little bit of extra attention paid to help them. Like if I'm like, you know, hey, the bass player is not feeling it. Like I can hear and hear the bass players playing shady or something's going on. I'll, I'll, I'll go out there and, and rather than let that crisis be unfold and, and amplify to being like, all of a sudden we need an extra day to fix these bass parts. Instead, what you do, you're like, how can I make this more affordable? How can I make this 
person more comfortable. So what I'll do often, sometimes there's an easy solution, like maybe their headphone mix sucks. Like here, when you work here, you have a little tiny mixer, a very simple mixer that is for your headphones. You could turn yourself up, maybe you could turn the drums up or the vocals or whatever you need to hear. But even that amount of small technology is sometimes beyond people's technological ability to balance out a decent headphone mix for themselves. Sometimes, because everybody has a different you know, level of experience and working in a studio. So if I think someone's struggling that way, then I will go in there and fix that for them and help them and that might solve the problem. Or maybe in the case of some bands, some people play better live. Like if you're recording a rock band, if you think of that, drums, bass, guitar, often you'll think um, some people feel more comfortable playing together. Like often a drummer and a bass player feel like a connection and they've rehearsed together and, and play well together. But sometimes the guitar players are a lot more comfortable doing it after the fact. Once they know the drums and bass are laid down, they'll be more comfortable overdubbing it after the fact, which is a possibility. So often before the session even starts, I'll first ask people, what is your comfortability? You know, like let's have an open and honest conversation about what you're comfortable doing. What are your expectations of me as well? Like, like that's actually the first conversation I have when people walk in the door is what are we trying to achieve in these four days you've booked, yeah. you know, or maybe we'll talk about that preferably before we even book the session or have a sense of that, especially if they're new clients that I haven't worked with before because everybody has different needs. So there's, there's an aspect of that of being prepared and also just like, um, it's also sort of a, a philosophy as well. Like you talk about people have argued in the space, people have been together in the space and stuff like that. So you, you speak about it as if it's come from a place of like an adversarial space or, or, or a place where people have, have, uh, have been at odds with one another leading up to that point in time. But the thing is, is that when you're making music, everybody's interests are entirely aligned. The goal is absolutely the same, which is make the great record. That's my goal. That's the singer's goal. That's the drummer's goal. Everybody's goal is exactly the same. So if you have people that are, that are um, in fisticuffs with one another, there should be a solution because every, every problem has a solution. Every problem has a compromise that will meet that solution. So the compromise might be that the guitar player overdubs it next week, or maybe the drummer... Um, is more comfortable when the bass player plays them live. Let's get, let's get those two guys down first, get them done quickly, and then devote a little bit more time to the singer who's who's struggling. Or, you know, like you try to kind of, don't come at it from, don't come at it from a point of view like we have a problem. Come at it, come at it from a point of view is like, hey, we're all, we're all aligned. All of our interests are entirely aligned. So um, how do we navigate this? What is the time allocation to navigate that to, to get to the best results in the end? And when you approach it that way, people will always change their tune instead of being like, hey, this guy's taking too much time and burning out all our cash, you know, screwing up his takes, you know, to, to being like, hey, we got to devote more time to this guy to make him comfortable. So that way the whole record comes out the best it could be, you know, you have to kind of change the way you, you look at it in a way. I think you have to have a positive slant. Well, so much of the psychology of what you're saying is about like, you're trying to give people what they want, which is mm -hmm. make a great record. Mm -hmm. And you just give them different paths to doing it. Yeah. Something. So I've, I've recorded a number of records over my time and every engineer's kind of got a different approach. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I've really noticed about your approach is you're really good with when to indulge someone about mm -hmm. having like kind of like the emotional conversation, yeah, like they yeah, can yeah. kind of unload to you, Yeah. but you don't, you don't get stuck in the conversation. It's like, and, and either this could be either intentional or just like a natural thing. It's like, you know, when to give someone that space, but you yeah. also know when enough is enough. And then you turn off the tap. And I can remember very specifically last mm -hmm. time I recorded, I needed to have moments where I just kind of like really talk to you about stuff. Yeah. But also I could tell when you were ready, like, 
okay, we're done. And not even tell, like, you're like, okay, let's get back in there. Yeah. Yeah. Or let's cut the session today. And it was such a, um, it was such a unique thing for me because you were really a, a, a taskmaster that understood the emotional component, but didn't let it become indulgent. Well, you have to kind of realize also, it's like, it's not about, it's not about me, you know, like, like if I'm going to, hit these points if i'm going to produce a record i'm going to insist on certain amounts of quality of singing or songwriting or or whatever be timing whatever it might be it's still not about me i'm still providing a a service to people and i try to remember that like try to disarm the the ego i i see a lot of young kids this kind of goes back to recording school where they come out and they do have the knowledge to conduct the session well but they've kind of thought that with that knowledge comes their sort of command of the session or their ego has been kind of prepped up by the all by the straight a's they got in recording school but they haven't kind of disarmed that ego to get to the point that it's like hey we're working with art where people have insecurities you know, and that is, and that can create tensions within a session where it just ends up not going very smoothly. And in the case of now, where we have this incredible technology for the, this comes back again to the editing thing. It's like, we have this ability to like, look, like if I'm recording a singer who's a little out of tune, I kind of know instinctually what the threshold is for, for, for acceptability and quality within the price they've asked for. And this comes back again to that circle of threes, better, faster, cheaper. Sometimes you have to compromise slightly and and just repair a little bit with editing in the mix. Like sometimes you have to do it, like you can save a little bit for post-production. Not everything can be perfect. If you have an infinite amount of money, I suppose we could eventually arrive at perfection, but very few people have that. And in the case of art, do we even want that? Yeah. yeah. Is Chinese democracy, is that the perfect rock album? <laughs> like that's, you know, that's $13 million and <laughs> decades of time. Is that perfection? Yeah. I don't know if that's perfection, right? I kind of think maybe Reserve 34 is perfection and that is yeah. a weird shitty album that we love. You know, yeah. like it sounds like crap because an, an idiot recorded but, it. But it sounds, it sounds like the right, and I don't you know, think it sounds like crap, but it's it sounds- It's perfect for what it is. It sounds yeah, cool, but you know. It sounds perfect for what it is. Yeah. So, so, uh, so I mean, also, I think there's also one more thing I just want to bring to it before we switch years is that i've noticed with people on earth as as individuals as human beings that a lot of the time the people with the loudest voices don't necessarily have intrinsically the most connection to the music or or any given task that they do sometimes they're the people with the biggest ego or the most confidence sometimes the person is very shy sitting on the couch not saying anything has actually a lot to offer to the music in particular the session so sometimes you also have to navigate the room like you're dealing with four people that all have different personalities one guy might be the leader of the band who's actually the quiet guy yeah, he's actually the shy guy yeah, yeah. he actually wrote those lyrics and has a real vision for it and then maybe the drummer's got the big ego and wants to get the fucking bass turned down and you know like whatever once that guy gone, you're like okay he's occupying all the space when someone else has something to offer so so for me i i sometimes like to make sure like if i'm given jesse what do you think about this like we've arrived at this crisis moment or maybe it's not a crisis maybe it's just a subjective decision making moment and 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 the person with the loudest voice will ask me my opinion and i'll say well i think this and then i say and what do you think person with the quietest voice like here's your opportunity to to like if you if you want to share now's the time to share right and you have to understand how to play the room yeah exactly you know your audience a little so, bit some some singers you can horse around with them you can tease them about their voice they can be like ah oh, you sound like Ben Midler on this one, you know, you can be like, you know, you can say something funny and they'll react to that. And actually that'll actually lighten up the session. Yeah. But some people will be like, Oh my God, like I'm trying to sing it. I was trying to sing in a punk band, but he thinks I sound like, like, like when do my wings, you know, like, it's just like, you know, like, it's just like a funny, like it depends. You have to kind of read the room, you know, comedians are that way though too. Right. Totally. Well, and empathy. 
it, it, it goes to the story I love to tell about you in regards to why I think, you know, when people are like, hey, should, should you record with Jesse? I'm like, oh, absolutely. And I always tell the story. It's my lead story about you, about it. And you know what I'm about to say. So. It's like, you totally know how to, how to let the right amount of having those emotional moments and how to play mm -hmm. the room, and how to manage different difficult dynamics. Yeah. But you also know when to take the piss out of somebody. Yeah, yeah. And I'll never forget, you know, we record this record. It's like years of my life. And I'd gone, been gone through such a difficult, terrible, painful time in my life. And I boil it all down into this record. And you, I remember you sitting right where you're sitting. You finish the last, the last thing. You're like, awesome, man. So yeah, we're all done. Record's done. Uh, that's a great 19 minutes. And I was like, 19 minutes. And we're like, yeah, man, it's a 19 minute record. Yeah. And the, all the like, you know, I'm a pale guy, but like all of the blood leaves my face. And you just looked at me and pointed and started laughing right at me. 19 minute long record. Um, well, also the, you know, teasing is, is in, 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 in most Western societies, definitely ours. Teasing is the most sincerest form of flattery, right? You tease the people you love. You might tease your wife, your partner or, or your husband, you know, like teasing is a way, like if I didn't, if I didn't, if I, if I didn't trust that, that I love you, <laughs> and then you also love me as a friend. I wouldn't take the piss out of you that way because you would know that I came from a place of caring. Right? But it's that's like, how, that was hilarious. But. <laughs> it was, but it was it was exactly what I yeah. needed. Which is like, dude, yeah. don't take it too seriously. Yeah, all the blood, like, sweat, tears for ninety yeah. minutes. And also, I'd like to say that, like sometimes the, the things that seem like a huge crisis in the session with the band, um, to me, because I have the experience, I've gone through it before. We there is an exit out of this problem, you know, totally. and it is just music, you know, it is just it, it is just money for that matter. It's not, you know, it is not rocket surgery. That's yeah. what we always say. People don't <laughs> die, you know, even if you're in your job, like you're yeah. trying to try to coach people, give people great advice. But I'm sure there's sometimes where something didn't work out the way it was suggested. Like totally. we're all human beings. My my wife works in the sciences, which you think is all about making things perfect all the time and being scientifically replicated all the time. But she, she tells me all the time, science is about throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks. It's, exactly. it's, it's way more of an art form than you think. And, and you can apply that, I think, to any business. Like, like I'm sure, like going back to Elon Musk, I'm sure Elon Musk thinks he's a genius because he invented Tesla uh, as a company and became a billionaire. But also, like, risk was involved like 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 we've also heard stories about him sleeping on the floor like as of the of the factory and stuff yeah, like yeah. that and you know personal relationships are sacrificed and all that stuff to rise up to the point that you see every other car on the road now is a tesla and and that, and, and people like ford and general motors said that couldn't be done mm -hmm. uh, even though he again he came from a place of privilege having owned paypal before but well and to go back to that story like what was so important about it is like you know, anything you're involved in, whether it's like music or whether it's like you start an accounting firm, whatever it is, it's your life story, yeah, right? Yeah. It's your effort. Yeah, yeah. And the way that we can think about our own stuff, like we're the hero of our story, yeah, right? Yeah. And so like we can make it seem like this monumental thing. And once in a while, you just need someone to elbow you or, or in this case, point at you, laugh yeah, a little yeah. bit and be like, hey, it's just, yeah. dude, it's a, yeah, yeah. it's a cool 19 minute yeah, record. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Like it really helped me. Uh, close the door on that project and be yeah. like, okay, it's, it's 19 minutes. It's actually, that's what a hardcore record is. That ability to, to move with people is something that I think is portable to any industry. So if you didn't do this today, like yeah. you could go off and pro you essentially are like this incredible project manager. You could project mm -hmm. manage a lot of incredible stuff. Mm -hmm. um, 
but we are getting to the end of our interview. So mm-hmm. um, before I ask you three questions, which are going to be increasingly, increasingly difficult, yeah. uh, anything that you want to cap off on, like anything you want to share, any ideas you want to put out there, and also like how people can learn more about you and Rain City Recorders? Yeah, I have one concept I wanted to share. Maybe it's sort of alluding, but you were just talking about making, making your record, you know, the blood, sweat, and tears. You know, the concept of sweat equity, like you do get out what you put into things. The energy and the sacrifice you put into your business which should, should be paying you back, hopefully on a monetary level, but also hopefully on an emotional level, particularly for those who own their own businesses and are self-employed, which is the place that me and you come from, which is what we're relating on today, even though we work in different spaces. Um, so I would just want to say that, like, you're not getting anywhere without sacrifice. You're not getting without sweat. You do need some luck coming from a place of of of, of privilege, like I like I I have been. It's obviously enabled me the framework to to take greater risks, like like Elon Musk did. He he came from a place of being wealthy already. Was able to take a risk starting a car company, which is you can only imagine how much that costs. Um, so I think anybody watching this, you know, working in in their own starting their own business can can take that. That I don't know anybody that hasn't sacrificed or felt pain for success. And and you had to go through a certain amount of pain to to make your record. And then when the record came out, all the reviews I read were joy. You know, everybody's like, hey, this is a record that I'm excited. This this 19 minutes are a joyful experience to me, you know, like <laughs> like it's 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 exciting, you know, yeah. even though for you it wasn't necessarily always that way getting there. And it's like that's everything. Like, like look at the musicians that come from hardship. Like look at, you know, like James Brown or you know, anybody, just drop it. Even even the people like look at Taylor Swift, look at the sacrifice she's made. She's been performing since she was a child yeah. on tour since she was a child to be the largest musician in the world now. And look at her now still writing song after song after song, creating out two albums a year. These are not this is Taylor Swift is coming from a place of sacrifice and pain mm-hmm. to make her incredibly successful, to make music that brings people joy or comforts them in their sadness. Yeah. And also Taylor Swift definitely knows how to monetize upon that and her team, um, you know, by being wildly successful on a financial level too. And, you know, deservedly so. Um, that said, I'm not paying $2,000 a ticket to see her. So um, to me, that is outside. That becomes capitalistic to the point. And maybe that's Ticketmaster or maybe that's lack of regulation from a government perspective, whatever it is. A lot of people are pointing the fingers. She's also pointing the fingers at Ticketmaster or her management or someone. But, you know, whatever, that has become disimbalanced now. And I'm not going to see her concert that succeeded the point that I'm willing to pay. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, I'm not paying that. I'll, I'll pay 100 bucks to Taylor Swift. I won't pay 2000 So, um, you know, there's that aspect exists without everything. Um, so, and about Rain City Recorders, I mean, for us, like, we just try to try to be transparent about what you get for what you pay. One thing that I can say is that I do not know how long it takes for you to make your record. I don't know how many mistakes you're going to make. I don't know exactly what your expectations are right off the bat, but I have a clue as to what it is. And most records, not all, there are some that go a little off the rails, but most records um, we complete within a day or two of what the expectation was of the project. So, so expectations were communicated by the customer. Expectations were agreed upon by me, including the price component, which we already spoke about. Um, and if I am on my game as a producer, in the in the film industry role of that job, then most of the time I can I can I can reach those targets within a reasonable margin of error. Like maybe say within five or ten percent. Like maybe you thought it'd take nine days and it took ten, or maybe you thought it'd take three days and it took four, but it's within that reason and delivering expect delivering on people's expectations is 
the the key to repeated customer success. Like, and that works for McDonald's. You expect the sixty nine cent hamburger. You know it's going to be this thin. You know it's going to suck. But if that's what you can afford and your expectations are met, then you're fine. Also, when you pay for the $25 burger, you expect it to be of a very good quality. And if it's not, you're never going back. Yeah. So there is an expectation of the consumer. There's um, that to be delivered by the provider of the service or the product. So I think that the success of this business is being able to meet on that. And in the case of when I was a teenager, I charged you eight bucks an hour. You expected a, a lo-fi kind of punk rock record. That's what you got. Yeah. But I work hard for you and, and I also try to meet your, maybe even exceed your expectations, hopefully exceed your expectations. So, you know, that's that's this key to any, um, to being customer satisfaction. When when you look at the consumer reports of products you buy, he's talking about material things here more than services, consumer reports. Customer satisfaction is the number one thing you would look at. If you're buying a new car, are people satisfied? If you don't expect it to run forever. You know it will break down. But you are, this will break down within a reasonable amount of time within your expectations. That's what you're trying to achieve. Awesome. Yeah. All right. So you're ready for your three questions. Yeah. Okay. Question number one. Yeah. What's one trait about you that you know you've had to work on to be successful? So it's a trait that would have just would have disrupted your success if you hadn't worked on it. For me, it's like disarming my ego. Like I used to have a a, a larger ego when I was a teenager. I'd be I'd be more likely to become hot headed or you know like just kind of like act with a little bit more like a, like a like an alpha kind of um, personality trait. And um and I used to bring that into the studio where sometimes I would like you know like um become more like adversarial people or I'd kind of like 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 feel like um like like if someone wasn't playing up to my satisfaction or something like that, I would, I would maybe encourage them in a way that was not like sympathetic to their needs. Mm -hmm. And I've learned over time, like, just like give people space. And, and, and maybe if the record doesn't meet that target, maybe if this person needs an extra day or two, that's probably better than pushing them or forcing them or making them do a, a crappy job that they're not happy with. Just like, you know, like it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay. Like you can cut yourself some slack. And also just like for me, I'm, I, I am a perfectionist. I'm a workaholic. I'm absolutely obsessed with, with my work mm -hmm. and just like cutting myself some slack too, being like, look, you know, not every record is a hundred percent. Like if, if I'm hitting high nineties, I got to cut myself some slack. I can't like if the budget of the records been spent and the band is satisfied, don't spend three more weeks of your own time burning yourself out doing nights. Mm -hmm. One more thing I could say too, is also cut yourself off. Like for me, I work a 10 hour a day. That's already two hours longer than most people work in a day. And I do that to add value to the band for the daily rate they pay because recording is expensive and I want to get paid a fair wage, but I sacrifice a few extra hours of my own time to let the band have space to breathe and to work a 10 hour day where they have a little bit more of a window to get comfortable, to have lunch, to, to chill. Maybe I got a coffee, whatever. That kind of thing is important as well. And it's, but it's also important to me after 10 hours to be like, I mean, not to say I'm immune from at the 12 or 13 hour day. I've done it. If, mm -hmm. if we're on the last day of the record and the singer's on a roll and I got nothing going on, of course, I'm going to work with you till the end of the day. Or if a band's coming from out of town and they're flying home tomorrow. Mm -hmm. But also to have a normal life within the arts community where I can go home, you know, see my partner, have dinner once in a while, like exercise, do things that make me healthy mentally. And also to own, like to take those days off, to take those weekends off. Like, don't just burn yourself out. Like burnout is real. And in the arts, I mean, this comes back to un unpaid internships. They push people to the point 
they don't even want to do the job and leave the industry. You know, like that's not productive. That doesn't create an environment where bigger and better and brighter people are, are exceeding. That creates an environment where people are burnt out and they go work in a different industry because they're totally. just like, screw this. Totally. And so and you yeah. see that across like just so many industries where cool people are doing good stuff. They just burn out mm -hmm. and they leave. And you're like, whatever happened to them? Yeah, All computer right. work is hard work. You may not you may not be running a marathon, but you are running a mental marathon and you are hurting mm -hmm. your hands and your neck and your eyes. Right. You need a rest from the computer. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Second, second yeah. question. This is going to be really difficult. Yeah. Of all the records that you've done, that I mean that you actually played on yeah, yeah. Uh, as a musician, yeah. what are the three that you're the most proud of? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I'm proud of this one that nobody ever heard. A band I played it with Joel Tong, my mm -hmm. good friend we spoke about earlier today before the interview. Uh, we played Shout a band out to called Joel. Yeah, Joel Tong. We play, <laughs> we play works in the film industry as a digital compositor. He's the one that taught me about ergonomics, about using um, a stylus so you don't give yourself carpal tunnel syndrome. BC's second biggest pumpkin. Yeah, BC. He also grew BC's second biggest pumpkin this year, 600 pounder in his front yard in East Van. Uh, first attempt. Um, but uh, anyways, yeah, we played in a band called Previous Tenants, uh, which was a punk rock band. And we toured a lot and played a lot. And our drummer was brand new at the time. He was just learning. And I wasn't ever sure if we were ever a tight band. But I, 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 the record came on at a, at a house party um, unexpectedly. And I heard it. I was like, this is good. What's this? Uh, and I forgot That's it was awesome. me. That's I, I, like we were short-lived band. I forgot yeah. I recorded the record. We yeah. never got any success at all. And I heard the record. I was like, I like that. What is it? I'm like, my brother's like, that's you, bro. <laughs> um, so that, that's one. Um, the last DBS record that I made myself, that I recorded all myself, I actually am still pleased with the sound of that record. I mean, w within the realms of, of what could be expected with what, what equipment and knowledge I had to work with. And um, yeah, I mean, and then for uh, another one, I'd say the the, the, the last Operation Makeup record. Um, and that's what, that one would exist on that level for me on an emotional level because it was with my two two of my best friends in the whole world, Katie Lappy and, and, and Anna. And, uh, you know, we were all going through difficult times. We were all 23, 24 years old. We broke up. A lot of us had um, difficult times with our lifestyles at the time and our, our also personal dynamics with one another had, had become frayed and, and our, and we had to move in or one of our, you know, our drummer moved away and we had, we had our band split up, even though we'd, we had successful tours, we were on a good record label, but we made this record kind of from a place of pain. Like I remember us like singing the record and like, you know, there being tears and stuff, but we did it. Like we had personal relationship dynamics that became frayed during it and stuff. Um, but when I listen to that record, I, I always still hear the pain that was in it, but I also feel the joy in, in making those two people. And also the hardship we went through making it has cemented our friendship. And now it's been 20 years since our band broke up. And like Christmas morning, who do I call? Katie and Anna every mm -hmm. single time. They're the people I call on Christmas, you know, like they're the people I care about the most in the world. So mm -hmm. the pain and the sacrifice of making that record um, cemented our relationships as friends. So, oh, yeah. so that's that's the third most important record to me as well. Or not, that's actually not in order. That's just three that come to mind. Awesome. All right. Last one. Uh, mm -hmm. If you were to think of any one um, producer or engineer that you really pattern yourself after yeah. or that you've that has been a huge influence on you, mm -hmm. who would it be and why? Well, for me, my hero is Daniel Lanois um, because uh, for a lot of reasons. One, he's a Canadian. Um, one, um, he um, cut his own path with his brother, Bob Lanois, recording in their mom's basement as teenagers, which is who I did um, or what I did. I mean, and, uh, you know, they were both guys that started with no gear, recorded their friends and the friend that they recorded that became their unexpected success was Rafi. 
Wow. Which every child has grown up in Canada listening to Rafi. Those yeah. songs are cemented in Canadian culture. Rafi was their friend and yeah. he wrote those songs to write music that was nice for children to listen to. Brought tons of joy around the world. And uh, that, and Daniel Lanois and that record, that Rafi record got out there because every single parent bought that record for their kid because it brings so much joy to people. And the songs are so great. And that's actually how like Brian Eno and stuff heard of Daniel Lanois, became producing teams, produced U2, who were an alternative rock band at yeah. one time and brought yeah. them to mainstream success, not by copying other people's sounds, but by being an original band. You don't have to like U2, you can like U2 or not. But those records were cutting edge in the, in their production and sound quality uh, um, at the time, and and that was as people doing something their own way, doing it in a DIY way, putting art first, and also just being like a genuinely nice guy. And and also as a Canadian, I also do um, I do look up to to Bob Rock as well as a Vancouverite and a guy that came from the punk rock scene, cutting his teeth trying to provide better sound quality to bands who are coming from a, a cheaper place, you know, recording these early Vancouver punk bands and, and, and achieve incredible mainstream success. So, of course, I look up to Bob Rock as well. Um, yeah, so those are the two guys that, that really look up to, I really, really look up towards. Uh, um, yeah, there's a few other people too. I mean, there's a couple other people I really admire. I, I admire Steve Albini too, as well, being coming from a punk rock space and building up a studio that became basically a world-class facility coming from a punk rock place and, and doing that through blood, sweat and tears and knowledge. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's one. And, um, and not a guy that's a, I was afraid to put out an unpopular opinion. Yeah. Yeah. He, too. he, he really uh, rustled with music culture, which I thought he was does. really cool. And a lot of things uh, about his, uh, his opinions, I, I, I don't agree with. And a lot of his, his work his a lot of his philosophy. I don't agree with And And that's awesome. You know, mm -hmm. I'm glad to, uh, glad to, uh, glad there's lots of opinions to be shared. I think we can all learn from that, you know? Totally. Uh, yeah. I, I think, wait, did you, did you want to say anything else for you? Uh, no, no, I'd say it's probably wrap it up. It's just the one that first came to mind, Emily Lazar um, of The Lodge, the best mastering studio in the world in New York. Uh, she's got the best ears. So I, I look up to her on a, from a pure high-fi fidelity nerd level, Emily Lazar at The Lodge. I hope one day uh, one of the bands I record can afford to master with her. Right on. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, Jesse, it has been a huge pleasure. Uh, I knew this was going to be a cool conversation, but there's something about you know, it's because we know each other and we've worked together and we spent long hours. There's just a certain kind of conversation you can have with someone. And this has just been uh, the best. So thank you so much for your time. All right. Thank you so much for having me on this podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, just like a, a really an honor to be a, mm -hmm. to be a, to be spoken, uh, to get a chance to speak with you. And, uh, you know, just also, um, yeah, I, I, I hardly ever get a chance to ask about the business aspects of the music industry. I'm always usually talking about the technology or the art and mm -hmm. it's fun to be able to, uh, you know, explore some of the other sides of what actually makes this machine tick. So yeah, thanks. Thanks. Thanks again for that. Awesome. Nice. You bet, man. Yeah. All right, everyone. Uh, we will see you in the outro and Mike drop the beat. Uh, I hope all of you enjoyed that as much as I did uh, in the conversation. Jesse is just such a great person, really about what he's about. And also it's just cool watching someone evolve and grow. You know, for anyone who's out there who started a business, you know what it's like to be day one and who you are on day 10 or day 100 or day 200 or day 600. You're just a different person. Of course, the core of who you are is the same, but you, the experiences you've had, the things that have caused you to really like grow and evolve your approach, they're gonna change you. And it's just been so gratifying to have someone like Jesse in my life. He's quite a few years ahead running his own business where I can kind of pattern what I do off of him. So Jesse, once again, thanks so much for joining. 
Uh, I really encourage anyone who listened to that podcast, if you want to do something, do it. Don't ask for permission. Take the leap. And in doing that, make sure what you do is worth the price that you're charging. Charge what you're worth, but make sure you know what you're worth. Knowing what you're worth is an interesting thing. Are you bringing something to the table that people want enough to seek you out? Are you doing something that has a level of expertise or specialty that people are going to say like, damn, I want to work with that person above anyone else. If you do, then don't work for someone else. Start your own thing. If you don't, go back, hone your craft, figure out your niche and take the leap. I firmly believe that if you have the opportunity to do it, starting your own business and and really betting on yourself is one of the coolest things you can do. And if you're someone who doesn't do that for whatever reason, you don't have the opportunity, maybe it's just not the path you want to take, then invest in yourself in other ways. Find that thing that matters to you, whether it's playing in a band or being a parent, starting a, you know, a side hustle, you know, writing a book, becoming a good dancer, whatever it is, find that thing that allows you to bet on yourself to really, you know, push your chips in and say, I know I can do this and make it happen. I'll tell you, there's very few things in your life that are going to be as rewarding as going all in on yourself. So with that, I'm going to leave you. I'm your host, Aram Arslanian, and this is One Step Beyond.